0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the Business Station.
1: BFM 89.9, good afternoon. I'm Roshan Connison, and this is Enterprise BizBytes. The Economy Southeast Asia is a multi-year research program launched by Google and Tamasic back in 2016. And later in 2019, Bain and Company joined the program as lead research partner. The research leverages Tamasic's insights, Bain's analysis, and Google trends primary research, experts, expert interviews and industry sources to shed light on the digital economy here in Southeast Asia. Some of the leading sectors here in the digital economy when we look at the region include e-commerce, transport and food, which I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with, online travel, online media and financial services, all of which are key areas that we are exposed to. The latest 2023 report launched earlier in November is the eighth edition of the Economy Southeast Asia report with the tagline, reaching new heights navigating the path to profitable growth a theme i'm sure is uh, very close to the hearts of many investors uh, in the region as well as many startup founders uh, the report highlights that southeast a- southeast asia has shown resilience against the global headwinds and economic challenges, with GDP growth above 4%, inflation at 3%, and a rebound in consumer confidence. And despite a decline in private funding, the digital economy in the region reached $100 billion in revenue in 2023, growing at a 27% compounded annual growth rate since 2021. Today we'll explore this is a hundred and twenty-four page report. So we're not expecting all of you to be reading it diligently at home. So we're gonna help break it down for you. Today you will learn about the key insights and findings from this report about the and the about the growth and potential of the digital economy in Southeast Asia with Willie Chung, partner at Bain and Company. Willie leads Bain's private equity and technology practices here in Southeast Asia. And if you have any thoughts, you can always WhatsApp us on our U Mobile number. That's zero one eight. 789 Uh Willie, thank you for joining us. Can you hear me loud and clear? Yes, and uh, good afternoon and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, our pleasure. I always look forward to this report. I am a, a little bit of a nerd in that way, really. Uh, all the insights it kind of helps us keep track of also what's going on in the region. I think it first started back in 2016, as I mentioned earlier, and at that point, I think it was uh, the theme was unlocking the 200 billion opportunity in Southeast Asia. I think we've come uh, quite some way since then. So um, maybe we can start off by you know a you know a top line look at some of the key findings of the 2020 the eighth edition of this report and some of the leading sectors that were covered, as I mentioned earlier.
0: Yeah, no, uh, happy to. And uh, I think you've, you you did a great introduction and uh, summary of some of the headline messages this year. Um, but um, I think this year, like I said earlier, uh, originally we said 200 billion uh, economy opportunity. I think we crossed that number last year. Uh, so we were three years ahead of schedule. So that's all good. Um, but of course this year the narrative in the market has changed. Mm. Uh macroeconomic headwinds, um, concerns and by the broader economy, geopolitical tensions, et cetera. Um, but exactly like you said, I think a couple of the headline messages this year. Uh very happy and, and glad to see that Southeast Asia is resilient um, relative to global headwinds, relative to other markets in region, actually Southeast Asia is still pretty well. And on top of that, Southeast Asian businesses not only have uh, continued the GMV growth, but has pivoted very successfully. I would argue through monetization and hence uh, exactly, like I said, revenue this year has hit that hundred billion mark. I think that's pretty remarkable considering that a lot of um, internet platforms actually don't recognize GMV as revenue, right? Because a lot of them actually take commission. So if you think about where the GMV is today at two eighteen billion or so, and you think about the revenue uh, at 100. It's actually it's, uh, that's actually pretty remarkable that some of these just gone gone this this far this quickly.
1: Uh, maybe we can okay. c- t- kind of take a look back at last year and this year. Some of the key differences from 2022, as you mentioned, um, you know the environment has changed quite drastically in the last two years. Uh, growth at all costs is no longer the mantra of startups, uh, and funding has become tighter. Interest rates are higher. Um, what are the key differences from this from the 2022 20, report and this year's report?
0: Yeah. So macro aside, um, if we think about where tech valuations have gone, not just in Southeast Asia, but globally as well, obviously high interest rates, uh, cost of capital defense. So investors have come to a more, I would say, somber uh, view of the markets with tech valuations. And that's necessarily put pressure on a lot of tech platforms in Southeast Asia as well. And so, whereas in previous years, it was all about pivoting or well it's reacting quickly enough to capitalize on the COVID bump or, you know, addressing challenges that were due to COVID. I think what's happened since last year is very rapidly, businesses have pivoted towards monetization and turned on that uh, lever, right, to, to drive towards profitability. So, GMV even though that shift has gone towards monetization, I think at the same time, GMT has continued to grow. So it's kind of a double whammy that is good to see, right? Because you would argue that, or you would expect if you turn on monetization, perhaps grow more site but in Southeast Asia, actually that, that happened. So I think it's, it's a, it's, it's a double good news so to speak compared to last year, right? Monetization is up, GMT continues to grow. Um, and obviously, uh, by now I think, um, uh, it's, it's, it's probably obvious, this year's report, I think this is the first time that we've taken a very comprehensive look at revenue. Uh, in prior years, it was all about GMV, mm-hmm. and this year it's all about revenue now, um, so that's that's a big change in the report.
1: Yeah, and uh, just for the folks who are not familiar with the term GMV, that's cross-merchandise value, which basically goes to show, I guess, the amount of transactions, uh, the value of the transactions being done on digital on, on the digital economy. Uh, so it's quite interesting to note, because I think some of the concern was that a lot of this GMV growth has been essentially subsidized by cheap money. Uh, and the right. fact that we have seen uh, monetization and uh, you know that push to profitability, yet GMV is still growing, is a good sign. But do we see any moderation in that growth rate, Billy? Uh, really? uh,
0: definitely, yes. Um, if we look at, for example, in e-commerce, and I'm trying to remember the number off the top of my head, but I think it was something around uh, 11 to 12 percent growth across the region. Uh, during COVID, this is 20 percent 30 percent, depending on the year. So it's very different. But uh, I would argue it's still double digit, but small, but double digit, uh, and that's that's pretty heartening. Um, and in some uh, some other sectors, for example, travel, uh, that's bounced back a lot. More, uh, but it's a different, very different starting point uh, because of COVID. So so that has changed quite a bit.
1: Uh, One of the, um, so as mentioned earlier, the Southeast Asia region, um, uh, from your view, from the report, uh, has stated to be quite resilient against the economic headwinds. Uh, What were some of the key indicators that, I guess, or some of the factors that contributed to this? What were uh, you guys watching in order to make this assessment that the uh, Southeast Asian economy was more resilient?
0: So a couple of things, and and I think you rightly mentioned a few um, earlier on. One obviously is GDP growth forecast. Uh, if we look at Southeast Asia versus the rest of the world, it's a, Southeast Asia is in a good spot where it's, it's kind of uh, a region where it's well under development mm-hmm. it, it's not completely early stage developing market. It is not late stage, mature market with mm-hmm. it no growth. It's a very nice balance of well into development, but a lot of headroom to growth. So GDP is one. Um, but of course uh, we're also looking at, let's say inflation, if we look, Look at what's happening around the world, inflation is up, but Southeast Asia, I think it's relatively moderate. Other, other indicators that we look at, for example, um, if we think about financial services, uh, lending, right, and uh, default rates or non-performing loans, uh, the rate at which that happens, that's also an indicator of uh, the health of the economy itself. And we do see that actually, yes, interest rates are slightly up um, for many lenders, but actually the NPL hasn't changed more drastically, right, for example. So, <clears throat> These are some of the indicators. Uh, but like I said, um, if we look at where Southeast Asia is and compared to where China or Korea or any of our North Asian counterparts in APAC, for example, we, we still have a long way uh, to, to go in terms of headroom for growth. Right? So, so, underlying fundamentals are strong.
1: Now, uh, before we go into a few messages, really, I want to talk a little bit about private funding because uh, the headline on the slide that I'm looking at here is Private funding is reverted to 2017 levels which is the lowest level in six years, uh, if my math, if my simple arithmetic is correct. Uh, but this overall is in line with global shifts towards, as we mentioned earlier, those, that higher cost of capital the uh, and the issues that we've seen across the funding lifecycle. Uh, exits, obviously, are still top of mind. And we are seeing some of them, although the IPO market has been a bit slower uh, talk to us about the factors that have contributed to this uh, decline in private funding and what kind of funding lifecycle challenges are we referring to in this report?
0: Yeah, so like you like you mentioned, um, a lot of the factors are global, are common, right? Uh, agent rates, cost of capital, funding, et cetera. And tech has just been more somber, uh, sort of I'm right? going uh, globally. But if I if we look at Southeast Asia, there are a few more ones um, or challenges, so to speak. One, as you already mentioned, the exit has been uh, more muted compared to tech companies around the world, right? Um, Exits have been not as uh, exuberant, so to speak, right? If we think about the potential and opportunities for startups and tech businesses, um, either it's a secondary market or it's going to be IPO. And IPO, typically, folks will look at new stock exchange um, and some doesn't really quite have that financial ecosystem mm. quite yet right so that's one and if we look at for example uh, Dpi or distributed to distribution to gain capital uh if we look at some of the metrics Southeast Asia is actually behind many markets right so but that's it of course we need to be cognizant that Southeast Asia as a investment um region right uh, for private equity for private capital it's relatively younger than uh, U.S uh, China Etc so DPI, yes, it's not as high as the regions, but also it's a, it's a younger uh, investment landscape. Uh, so that's one, right? And the second is, if we think about the businesses in Southeast Asia, I think Southeast Asian tech platforms were maybe a few years behind, let's say, the Chinese or the American tech platforms, right? So you talk about e-commerce, right, etc. So naturally, they were a little bit behind in terms of their profitability story, right? In terms of their growth curve, in terms of the profitable curve. So... I think these two factors then kind of to some extent influences how investors think about the opportunities the region. Hence, hence the feedback from a lot of uh, investors saying that, look, it's about more realistic uh, valuation. It's about uh, exit opportunities, and it's about making sure that the businesses they invest in, in Southeast Asia have a viable path to profitability, right? Because the growth is, well, the growth was uh, was over the past few years, and now it's It's about a focus on monetization. And obviously, there's a lot
1: more in this report about private funding, the challenges uh, that are being faced by funders as well. I think funds are facing challenges in returning capital to investors, which there are more details in this report as well. Uh, I wish we could dive further into that part, really, but we have to go talk about other things like digital financial services and so on, which we will dive into in just a few minutes. Folks, the eighth edition of the annual Economy Southeast Asia report uh, by Google, Tomasek and Bain and Company was released earlier this month. A report that aims to shed light on the digital economy in Southeast Asia. We've been exploring key insights from the report with Willie Chang, partner at Bain and Company, and more. Uh, we'll get into more in just a few minutes. I'm Roshan Kanesin. Keep it here to BFM eighty nine point nine, the Business Station. Best flipping moments. BFM eighty nine point nine, the Business Station. BFM 89.9, welcome back to Enterprise BizBytes. The annual economy Southeast Asia report by Google, Tamasik and Bain Company was released earlier this month. A report that aims to shed light on the growth and the potential of the digital economy here in Southeast Asia. A Willie Chang partner at Bain Company has been helping us explore key insights. Uh, for the report, so that you don't have to read the 126 page report, although we do recommend it given the amount of details in here. And there's only so much that we can get into live on the show. Really, leads Bain's private equity and technology practices in Southeast Asia. Um, really, I think we can move. We were talking a little bit about funding earlier. And Now I want to talk a little bit about some of the subsectors, and uh, one of the obviously it always catches our, our attention. Uh, is uh, the things like GMV growth you know, overall in the region. So the digital economy is poised to deliver both revenue and GMV growth, as we touched on a lot, uh, touched a bit on earlier. Revenue growth at 1.7x the rate of GMV, which is quite interesting to note and quite positive, I think, for the tech startups in the region. Uh, the e economy report also says that digital businesses have shifted their focus to monetization in a bid to achieve profitability targets, as you met, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, Talk to us about, I guess, how they're doing this, right? Because uh, knowing that they're going through this monetization journey and profitability targets is one thing, but what are they doing to uh, hit those targets?
0: Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. And like I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of the digital businesses or platforms in the region are marketplaces, so to speak, right? So many of the revenue is actually so-called 3P, third -hmm. party. In a sense that GMV is not revenue, it's cut over on top of it. So that's true for a lot of e-commerce marketplaces. It's true for right-handing, for example, et cetera, et cetera. Now, revenue is growing quite strongly. Primarily, you can boil it down to four four levers. One, of course, is the underlying volume growth, which is GMV. The second, uh, the biggest, the biggest impact over the past few years, and you've mentioned this earlier, which is incentives, uh, promotions, incentives. That's come down, right? So it's focusing on quality GMV, if you will. And uh, foregoing some of that, um, I'm going to call it bad quality GNV, but GMV that was instigated by promos and, and incentives. Right. So, so that's number two. Right, uh, incentives come down drastically. The third one, somewhat depending on which sector we're talking about, but the underlying commission rate has gone up. So, mm. for every hundred dollars of e-commerce transaction, how much as the platform do I take? Right. And for example, the e-commerce has come up to about four percent now. So, four dollars on, on hundred dollars. And if we look at around you know, some of the countries, it's not going to be as uh, like the U.S. market where Amazon takes anywhere between you know, 10 to 20%, for example, right? Amazon is different. Business U.S. is a different market. In China, in Mall, Taobao, et cetera, we see a 4% market as kind of that benchmark. So if we think about APAC, Southeast Asia, we started from zero and now we're at 4%. I think that's a very healthy story. But if we think about it, do we have the opportunity to go even further? Questionable. Uh, that's an open question. Let's uh, wait wait and see how the market develops. So that brings us to the fourth lever, actually, uh, which is adjacent revenue streams. Mm. And by that, I mean, let's say, for example, e-commerce. Uh, yes, we take uh, or they take a 4% cut on transaction. But on top of that, they're adding on things like uh, device protection, right? The white goods section. Or uh, they're adding on things like buy now, pay later, right? They're adding on things like ads for the merchants. If you want to be listed further up the page as ads. And then they're offering things like logistics as well. So all those additional monetization streams have actually piled on. Uh, And so that actually has been the biggest driver in terms of uh, revenue growth.
1: Uh, And a lot of this, actually, I've, I've personally witnessed with some of the conversations I've been having with some of these marketplaces that have built these user bases and platforms. Now they're looking at not just the take rate, but how else can we leverage the user base? We spoke to Novelship a little while back as well. They're a big sneaker platform, a few others, Uh, all these shows you can find on our uh, Open for Business show, which is 10 a.m. every day. Uh, We're also available on podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those big ones as well, or bfm.my. Sorry for the little bit of a plug there, Um, (laughs) (laughs) Willie. But this is something I've noticed with a lot of the players. Whenever we talk to marketplaces and platforms, it seems like they've spent the era of cheap money building up user bases. And now it's like, okay, we have the user base. How else? can we monetize this? How else can we make money? And how else can we make better margins? Um, mm. But not all sectors are the same, right? So maybe yeah. give us a sense of which sectors in particular are more likely to show the ability, uh, more likely to show better growth and better monetization.
0: Oh, that's a tricky uh, question without defending <laughs> different startups and different start- uh, sectors. But I would say, I would say different sectors have, um, are at different points of the journey. Mm. Oh, travel platforms, for example, um, you know, uh, Ticket.com, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, travel has been relatively more mature, I would say. Uh, the monetization model was there many, many years ago, right? Um, so that has been more mature. I would say on-demand platforms, the core monetization was there on the commissions, right? But the incentives were very high. Yeah, so that's a different part of the journey. If we think about e-commerce, the core commission five years ago was actually very, low, you know, extremely low. Uh, and now that's turned on. And it actually, they're piling on the, the adjacent revenue stream. So that's a different story as well. Um, and then, of course, you have media, which media, I think, historically has always been to some extent, profitable. Uh, Spotify is the world and uh, Netflix is of the world, for example. So that that's a different path. And I think where it's it's interesting would be digital finance services. Yeah. Um, relatively more nascent than than these uh, sectors uh, that we typically talk about, right? Uh, so they're, they're earlier on their path to monetization, I would argue.
1: Yeah, so one of the things in the report is that uh, it was noted that uh, DFSs or digital financial services have succeeded in increasing monetization and building adjacent revenue streams. Uh, digital payments now make up more than 50% of the region's overall transaction value, which is very uh, impressive. Could you elaborate on the uh, challenges and opportunities presented yeah. in this particular sector especially with the rapid adoption of digital financial services uh, and the shift away from cash transactions and things like digital banking coming into play, digital insurance, et cetera.
0: Yeah, it's actually very interesting sector because it's not a modern the thing. Um, hmm. you're, you have payments, you're lending, you have insurance, you have wealth management, uh, digital banks, uh, for example, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite diverse and the trajectory has been different. The challenges have been different. I would argue that digital payment has seen quite a bit of success over COVID. I think we've seen a lot of users and a lot of merchants finally saying, forget the cash. I'm going to accept credit cards, e-wallets, accounts uh, of account transfers, once and for all. Right. And we've seen that because that was traditionally the biggest barrier. SMEs not wanting to pay that merchant discount rate to credit card companies and so Right. So that has, that has been quite a successful. Um and then, if you think about the next one, which is lending, I think lending has grown quite well. Uh, if you look at the report actually, mm. lending is the biggest revenue pool in financial services. but mm. uh, um, the story with lending is always a bit of a balance. How fast will it grow? How much do I control uh, my uh, credit underwriting uh, and my uh, loan book quality? yeah. And so if you think about lending very early stages Southeast Asia, and it's it's a good thing that fintech lenders are increasing the financial inclusion right? offering folks who do not necessarily have a bank account uh, a credit. Line. Um, but the challenges are different. right? Uh, the challenges would be, how do I control that underwriting capability? How do I know that I uh, have enough data on a customer to underwrite uh, a good book, right? uh, to, to price risk well? So that's the lending. And then insurance is a different story. The insurance is much younger, I would argue, than payments and lending. Um, the question was always around value proposition. How do I sell an insurance product online? Well, right. Mm-hmm. Selling products are easy. Uh, for example, auto insurance that could be easier. But life insurance, I think you and I are probably not ready to buy uh <laughs> you know a life insurance policy just with a click of a button without talking to anyone, right? So how do you adjust that value proposition and, and make that work? And, and which which brings me to the final point around DFS, which is digital banks. The but underlying value propositions about user user experience, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about the traditional banks with a lot of the banking apps today, they are pretty good. They've done a lot of work and been successful over COVID to digitize the traditional business. So then for digital banks, uh, then the challenge is, well, beyond customer experience at higher deposit interest rates, what's the value proposition do I that I bring to a customer for me to shift my bank account from a traditional bank
1: to Digital bank, yeah, and, uh, and some of these things that you've mentioned are quite interesting. Like payments, I think we, the adoption was kind of kind of forced uh, over the last yep. few years with the pandemic. Digital lending is a lucrative uh, business given the spread between the cost of funding and the interest rate that you can get from that lending. Yep. But ensuring that you don't overly uh, take too much risk and uh, and then does start to see your your non performing loans go up is the, that key crux of that business. The other side's uh, obviously have that whole um can you the user behavior can you tap into people buying uh, you know can you get people to buy insurance online or do you have to break it down to different things something quite interesting that we are noticing as well with some of the malaysian fintech players um another interesting point in this report was that uh was the value of high value users right so engaging high value users looks to have become critical to achieving sustainable unit economics for uh, the digital economy uh the top 30% of Southeast Asian spenders account for more than 70% of the digital economy spend, a true testament to the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. Um, talk to us a little bit about the uh, the importance of engaging the high-value users and getting your sustainable unit economics.
0: Yeah, and uh, this is this has always been true, but I think over the past few years, like you said, uh, capital was a more affordable right? people with chasing growth. Um, but it's, it's, like I said, even more critical these days, uh, high value users, why are they valuable? They don't just spend more, um, tend to be less price sensitive, perhaps, and uh, less likely to churn. So you don't need to, uh, you don't need to invest in uh, customer acquisition costs just to bring them back or or to engage up again. And a uh, bigger basket, which uh, sometimes, depending on which sector you're in, actually gives you better economics, right? Uh, say for example, if I if I do a big basket on e-commerce, it, one shipment to uh, many of the operators that were economical, rather than buying you know ten dollars each basket and having five different shipments. So high value users definitely have many reasons why that's high value, not just of spending, but to the platform themselves. And so the question is, how do you retain these uh, customers? Right? How do you make sure that you nurture and uh, retain and protect this customer base? Uh, so that you can drive monetization and drive monetization and reduce your costs at the same time, right? Uh, because of that, of the, of the many reasons that we mentioned earlier. It's true, I would argue, for many sectors, if not all um, e commerce for sure, on demand, uh, food and transport, um, even travel, media, for example. You know, these are the biggest accounts. Um, even Atlantic, although you argue that they're probably not high-value customers, but they're probably high-value lender. Mm-hmm. But that, that's also true, right? Uh, so, so that probably is applicable to all
1: sectors. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Now we're starting to see prices go up as well. I mean, you noted earlier, uh, take rates for e-commerce are going up. Uh, and that's when you're starting to see the value, whether um, whether it was all about the promotions and the subsidies that were being given and uh, attracting your user base. Uh, Netflix has multiple times raised its prices this year as well. Uh, all of this going to show whether users will continue to pay or will they go back to old habits? Uh, really, we've got to go into a few messages. We'll be back in just a bit. Folks, uh, today we've been exploring key insights from the eighth edition of the annual economy Southeast Asia report by Bain & Company, Google and Tamasic, a report that aims to shed light on the digital economy in Southeast Asia along with it, the opportunities and the potential here. Helping us with this has been Really Chang, partner at Bain & Company. We'll be back in just a bit. Keep it here to BFM 89.9, the business station.
0: Brave Finance Managers, BFM 89.9.
1: BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Enterprise Biz Bytes. I'm Roshan Kanesan and today we've been exploring the 8th edition of the E-Economy Southeast Asia report by Google, Tomasek, and Bain and & Company that was released earlier this month. Uh, this report every year tries to shed more light on the digital economy here in Southeast Asia along with its potential, its growth and the opportunities in it. Today, we've been exploring key insights from this 126-page report with Willie Chang, partner at Bain and Company. Willie also leads Bain's private equity and technology practices here in Southeast Asia. Um, Willie, a big thing when we talk about digital, the digital economy, digital financial services, is always this rallying cry around digital inclusion, which has been a key theme, uh, particularly for digital financial services over the last few years. I'll talk to us a little bit about the steps that are being taken to bridge the digital economic divide that is present in Southeast Asia, especially considering that now the focus is
0: on monetization. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 a challenge um, mm. if you if you think about it because it's fun, fundamentally contradicting. Um, monetization supports it, high value users. support sense. I'm going to focus on driving profits with higher value users. I'm not going to be spending a lot of promos and getting. Not high value users, or let's say users outside of metro areas, uh, right? So it's it's a fine balance, it's a contradicting um, objective, if you will. Uh, but if we think about where the headroom is in terms of growth, investors are not just looking for profitability, but also maintaining that growth over time. And so, if you think about where the headroom is, it's going to be in the non high value users, so to speak, right, or in outside of metro areas. So the challenge is that, and I think we've seen a couple of steps being taken uh, by businesses by, and also by regulators. Uh, I think by governments, regulators and policymakers, one thing that helps is infrastructure. Uh, businesses by themselves cannot build infrastructure and scale, for example. right. And so the public sector needs to be able to contribute to that. Uh, we've seen, for example, payments was a great success story uh, in many countries in Southeast Asia, including Malaysia. We've seen national real-time payment real. It's a fundamental underlying infrastructure, and that's helped many businesses digitize. Right? So regulators help um, and there's there's more work to be done, but also businesses. How do you change the value proposition to still get people on and remove some of the friction points, right? So friction points, let's say if, if you're not living in a metro area, perhaps delivery speed, perhaps uh, the speed at which you can call a uh, taxi or on demand by right, heading service. Uh, things like that. So, how do you actually improve that while maintaining sustainability in terms of profits at the same time? So, businesses have some way to go, but actually, this I think is a good business practice in the sense that you're now looking at growth by doing it properly without the cheap capital. Yeah, some of the data points that were quite
1: interesting uh, is that the increase in the percentage of households with internet access, and we look within urban versus rural. Now, in Malaysia, there isn't such a there wasn't such a gulf. So, seventy six percent. Uh, in 2015, uh, 76% of houses, uh, households had internet access in 2015. In 2022, is was about uh, 97%. On the urban side, uh, it's 49%. Uh, for the rural side, 49% in 2015, 89% in 2022. But if you start taking a look at other countries, like Indonesia, for example, the rural areas, 20, only 20% of households, uh, in the, based on the report, had internet access. And that saw a 3.7x increase to 74% in 2022. So... These are the things that are being done, and I guess showing that that connectivity bridging that's being uh, that's happening. Um, talk to us a little bit about the role that ecosystem investment plays in all this, in addressing that that economic, that digital divide.
0: Yeah. So when you think about ecosystem, so e-commerce, uh, like I said, is a great one. So e-commerce is interesting because there are multiple underlying infrastructure areas that need to be built by ecosystem players. So uh, you talked about internet penetration, so that's telcos you know, putting in in place, internet access places, then uh, you need to be able to pay for whatever your bought. Mm. Five years ago, I would say a lot of e-commerce has done on delivery, and that uh, it was a headache for uh, many of the digital platforms <laughs> because uh, people will show up and they will say, well, sorry, I don't want to pay for that thing anymore. That's gross, right? Whereas in digital payments, you say, well, if you don't pay, I'm not going to send it to you. So that has changed. Uh, like we mentioned earlier, digital payments was a lot of national infrastructure put in place, uh, people that sort are of going you know, online. So ecosystem's there, but uh, also you have the physical parts, which is logistics, for example. Mm. And so we're seeing, uh, in, this is in the report as well, we've uh, taken a look at, for example, demand for e-commerce uh, as indicated by Google Trends and the supply as indicated by the number of pickup and drop-off points for last mile logistics. And you do see a big uh, divide in some areas or some provinces in, in some countries. Right? Uh, there is demand, but the number of pickup drop-off points is actually quite low. So logistics was the other one that had to go in as an ecosystem player to improve that for for you know people to actually go in and e-commerce platforms to actually monetize. So a lot of actually it's beyond just platform itself. Big roles for everyone to play.
1: As we look ahead uh, again, there's so much more that we can talk about in terms of the different. Nuances oh. in this report. I mean, for example, okay. there is a worry that the gap could widen further in terms of uh, the, the ratio of metro to non metro online spend per user if the focus is purely on monetization. I presume part of that is because, you know, it's no longer about trying to get all the customers, getting the high value customers and the higher, uh, getting your average ticket per basket to go up. Uh, but I also want to talk about economic growth, right? Because ultimately, the big thing about all this is that these digital businesses, these digital economy uh, companies, are supposed to help grow the economy in Southeast Asia in the longer run. So talk to us about the path forward for economic growth and factors that will contribute to the
0: the optimism around profitable growth here in Southeast Asia. Yeah, um, many factors, actually. And we continue to be very optimistic about the region. Um, So if we think about, for example, like I mentioned earlier, GDP per capita, think about uh, where the economy is, not just the digital, but the underlying economy is, Southeast Asia is a lot of growth to go, right? A lot of headroom compared to China, well, mature counterparties and APAC, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one. It that gives us confidence. Number two, investors are thinking about growth opportunities, growth equity, for example. Southeast Asia remains one of the few regions in the world where it is relatively stable. The growth headroom is there, the underlying macroeconomic tailwinds are there, right? So this is just one of the few areas in the world today for any growth equity uh, investor to look at so that that gives us also confidence optimism um that has to be there and then i think three the ASEAN region has come together quite well uh policy makers favorable to you know, its digital economy and trying to actually pursue uh, and encourage growth and i think the last one probably is we are in a kind of unique position where many of the tech startups and founders and digital platform companies, they have the benefit of watching how the world has evolved. Um, America was perhaps 10 years, was 10 years ahead. They've seen how that they evolved. Um, they've seen how the Chinese tech platforms evolved. Different monetization models, sometimes different value proposition. And so there's that precedent, if you will, to, to learn from. right? So so all in all, I think the the cards are favorable uh, in the hands of Southeast Asian digital economy. I think to wrap up our conversation today, Billy, we got to
1: talk about exits, right? Because that's always going to be a, a key concern for startups in the digital economy that are building their businesses. Uh, are there any insights into the strategies employed by Southeast Asian businesses to prove their clear pathways to profitability while ensuring a dependable exit? Uh, de- uh, while ensuring dependable pathways to exit
0: for investors, yeah, um, I think it comes down to discipline. Um, it comes out to discipline now. Capital is no longer free or or cheap. So building a business that both grows well, but also is sustainable in terms of profits. And I believe, well, pretty soon we'll be also looking at ESG in terms of sustainability. So those need to be in place for some of these companies and that comes out to discipline, discipline at some business practices. And beyond that, then exits, well, again, comes out to what exit paths either uh, you know, for investors, either secondary private markets or public markets. And that has to, well, we kind of have to look at where the world is sense and uh, the wider investment. So uh, making sure that they time it. properly. Really, it's been an absolute pleasure
1: speaking with you and breaking down this uh, this lengthy report. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Oh. Folks, I've been speaking with Willie Chang, partner at Bain & Company. Willie also leads Bain's private equity and technology practices here in Southeast Asia. Uh, the report is available on the Google website, just or you can just Google e-economy, uh, S-E-A 2023, to learn more about the state of digital economy here in the region. I'm Roshan Karnasin. Keep it here to BFM 89.9, The Business Station.